FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, m- many of you out there are regular listeners to the show, and you know that over the years, but especially during the pandemic year, we've spent an awful lot of time talking about healthcare, medicine, but put it into a political context. Uh, we have looked at the disparities that the pandemic has pointed out in terms of how people of color uh, have poorer access to health care. Uh, minorities are... Uh, faring more poorly in terms of getting COVID-19. So we've covered that uh, pretty substantially for a long time now. But today we're going to take a look at an issue about medicine that is far more breathtaking in scope. We're going to be talking with Eleanor Cleghorn. Her new book is Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. And in the book, She tells us truly harrowing stories about how misogyny has played a role going back to the ancient Greeks in how women are dealt with in terms of medical treatment and an understanding of their bodies. She would argue, I think it's fair to say, and I'll ask her, that it's more than women have been discriminated against or marginalized in terms of how doctors, male doctors, have dealt with them. It's that they've been virtually invisible and that the totality of their bodies have simply not been understood by men. And as a result of that, they have suffered pain and disease that continues in some ways to this very day. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, And I'm thankfully joined by Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and the author of the twice-a-week column, Political Insider, um, which you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She also oversees uh, The Jolt, the daily uh, update uh, on politics. It's at AJC.com. Patricia, I'm awfully glad you are here with us for this discussion because today I truly am literally the odd man out. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> Finally, Bill. <laughs> Finally, here's the odd man out. I'm just kidding. Um, Bill, I really want to thank you so much for bringing Eleanor on today. And I want to thank you for highlighting her book because it was so eye-opening, even to me as a woman who has um, had doctors for a long, long time and covered public policy, has been so eye-opening to see real um, quantifiable research and data put behind what so many of us have long assumed, which was there was... um, not just uh, an ignorance of women, but just a systemic foundational lack of understanding and a lack of interest in uh, women's health care um, that dates back to the Greeks. And so I, I'm so glad you're doing this, and I'm so excited to be on with Eleanor. Well, with that, let's say hello to Eleanor Cleghorn, who joins us. Are you in Sussex, uh, uh, in your case, this afternoon, Eleanor? I am in Sussex, yes, in the south of England. Thank you so much for having me, Bill, and lovely to meet you, Patricia. Eleanor, I want to start with a personal uh, note. Um, My wife, uh, who listeners hear about with some regularity on the show, my wife and our 24-year-old daughter have never had anything but female physicians. They feel very strongly that it's the female doctors who will understand and empathize and relate to them uh, in a way that, um, that it's not that they don't understand they're very talented and, and, and worthwhile uh, male doctors, but they just feel more comfortable in the hands of women. I suspect you understand that, Eleanor. I do understand that. And certainly since I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in 2010, all the specialist doctors and consultants that I have seen in the fields of rheumatology, immunology and hematology have all been women and they've all had a very sort of in-depth and very kind of intimate and accepting understanding, not only of my disease and the way that my disease manifests in my body, but also with some of the difficulties that I might have as a woman in kind of claiming space and feeling validated when I speak about my pain and my other health concerns. So that's certainly been my experience too. 
I'd like to, at some point, uh, bring in your personal history, because it's important to this narrative, um, your history of finally, after almost, I think, a decade of being misdiagnosed or undiagnosed, finally recognizing that you have, in fact, got lupus. I'd like to go to more of the general thesis of the book as we start. Um, you say, you take us all the way back to Aristotle, to Hippocrates, to the ancient Greeks and their understanding or lack of understanding of um, women's bodies. And really the thread that ties them together with uh, the people you write about in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and actually all the way up to the 21st century is we have never been, we women, have never been respected narrators of what happens to our bodies. To be an unwell woman today is to fight against ingrained injustices against women's bodies, minds, and lives. Um, and then you go on to say we no longer have to live in silence and shame, and that's one of the points of your book, bringing this to the fore. Um, take us back in history, if you don't mind. Hippocrates, you tell us at the very beginning of the book, uh, believed that women deserved equal treatment in medicine, but he had no idea of exactly what that meant. He basically believed that women's health was all rooted in the uterus, which dominated everything about their bodies physically, correct? Absolutely correct. I mean, my book begins in ancient Greece with the part of medical history that I would cite as the beginnings of our Western scientific evidence-based medical canon. And Hippocrates was actually a collection of authors of a collection of tracts called the Hippocratic Corpus. And it was really these sort of foundational discourse on the care of the human body and the treatment of the human body's illnesses and diseases. Now, of course, ancient Greece was a patriarchal society in which the primary role of women was a reproductive one. And so when the ancient Greek physicians were making these assumptions and theories about the illnesses and diseases of women's bodies, they were drawing also or reflecting on the social position of women in ancient Greek society. So it made sense to them that the uterus or womb was the sort of centre of a woman's body and it was the organ around which all of the most vital sort of attributes of her health and illness would pivot and circulate. And from this centrality of the womb in terms of the understanding of female physiology and female anatomy and female illness comes a real sort of embedding of social ideas about what women's bodies are for, about what women's lives are for, about how women should live their lives and about what the optimum state of health is for a female body, which really in the ancient Greek um, gynecology and ancient Greek physicians' texts was to be pregnant, which was to be performing the you know, correct social duty for a woman at that time. So health was associated with being pregnant, with conceiving a child, with giving birth, with the fertile years. And so the opposite of that was a womb that wasn't performing its duty, that was underused, um, unemployed even, should we say. And that's when the trouble would start. And the ancient Greeks believed that if a woman's womb was not performing the social duty of reproduction, that it could almost move around the body, that it could become displaced and roam around the body in search of moisture. And uh, that is from where we get one of the most outlandish theories in medical history about women's bodies, which is that of the wandering womb. And although the wandering womb, the idea that a womb could actually meander around a body seems completely ridiculous and we know it's impossible. What this really did was cement a kind of mythology that I feel has persisted over the centuries, that women weren't really in control of what was happening in their bodies, that women didn't really have agency or autonomy over what was happening underneath their skin. And I think in terms of women not being respected as reliable narrators of their bodies today, when they speak of their pain and other symptoms, we can really see the roots of it in this kind of dismantling of women's agency around knowledge about their bodies and their sort of intuitive feelings about what's happening in their bodies. What I thought was so interesting, Eleanor, about this portion of the book that, is that it really seems to be the origin of an idea that really persists today, I think, 
is that a woman's body is not her own. It's really the subject and the interest of the society at large, but her interest in it does not belong just to her. It belongs to the other people around her and the society that she's a part of. Absolutely. There's this sort of ownership, I think, that especially from the idea that a woman's body is is destined to sort of service, be of social service, that there's somehow not, yeah, as you say, there isn't an ownership or that she may own her body, but knowledge about it, real awareness about it doesn't belong to her and that it belongs to those who would control her. So be that medical authorities or the husband or whoever has kind of propriety over her body. It's it's sort of her ownership is deferred to others, as you say, yeah. Um, so let's move this forward just a bit uh, in, in terms of understanding the thread of all this. So the ancient Greeks misunderstood completely. I mean, this notion of the womb as having sole uh, power over what a woman's body experienced. But at a certain point, and I think you'd go to, you, you talk in the book about uh, the 15th century, about the 1400s, when 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 the mysteries of a woman's body became more than just a problem for women and, and, an, and an inability of, of uh, medical people of their day to understand what was happening, it, it actually became a demonizing force. Uh, women suddenly, the mysterious female body uh, suddenly became, a, a, to some extent, that's when we started thinking about witches and supernatural powers when we started talking about menstruation as a uh, an evil tool that women could use to poison animals uh you tell us and more do we lose you eleanor i think we just lost eleanor uh we're going to try to get her back in a minute um and we're, ha we're having a little problem with our communication patricia um it's pretty astonishing. And if we have some trouble getting Eleanor back, we'll just uh, carry on as best we can for a few minutes. Um, so this notion, when you, you did read the book, so this notion that somehow it, women went from just uh, uh, being misunderstood physical bodies uh, to actually being uh, evil forces really was a horrific uh, uh, turn that persisted for centuries. Well, it did persist for centuries. It uh, cost many women their lives. It certainly caused them to be ostracized um, for something that was really just a, a very natural part of any woman's physiology. Um, but it also speaks to me about the entire concept that um, uh, the knowledge of the body and the knowledge of medicine at that point was still seen entire, entirely through men's eyes. I mean, it certainly would not have been a woman who decided that she was um, a witch conducting witchcraft because this was happening within her own body. That was something that was just purely created by men who didn't understand um, what was happening because it was so different from what happens in men's bodies. And so that, again, was another moment for me where you start to think, um, and there continues to exist a great deal of shame, I think, for women around menstruation and periods for young girls. And um, that's a that is just a societal, social norm that I think still persists even from that day as a result of, of men's interpretation and lack of understanding. So uh, have we got you back, Eleanor? We're still working on it. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Uh, Sam and Jesse are going to work on reestablishing connection with Eleanor Cleghorn. Let's get a quick break out of the way and come back in just a moment with more. We're back on Political Rewind. We're still struggling to uh, reconnect with uh, Eleanor Cleghorn, her book on well women. It was topic our conversation today. Patricia Murphy from the AJC is with me. Uh, Patricia, you and I are probably not the best people to represent uh, <laughs> Eleanor's book. And I know Sam and Jesse are trying to establish uh, uh, her again from Sussex in the south of England. But in the meantime, Patricia, uh, we should take advantage of uh, your uh, latest political reporting. Uh, I have not had a chance to read the jolt yet this morning, 
Can you give us a headline or two about what do you the, I see the headline says a federal decision on an Illinois representative could affect Democratic fundraising in Georgia. What's that about? So there is a congresswoman in Illinois uh, named Robin Kelly, who is a newly elected congresswoman this year. And she also serves simultaneously as the chair of the Illinois Democratic Party. Um, we have a similar situation here in Georgia in that Nikima Williams is a newly elected congresswoman and also the chair of the Georgia Democratic Party. Um, in Illinois, and this is not uh, directed at Nikima Williams, but in Illinois, um, Republicans there filed a complaint or asked for um, asked for an opinion from the Federal Election Commission about whether it is permissible for a federal elected official, a congresswoman, to also raise state political funds and local political funds. Um, and the FEC came out with an opinion yesterday that said that um, no, Robin Kelly, as a as an Illinois congresswoman, cannot raise state funds in Illinois. Um, that's relevant because uh, the role of any Democratic Party chair or any Republican Party chair is to raise money. And obviously, at the state level, you're raising for both federal races, which would be the Raphael Warnock race, any um, races for president or Senate or Congress, but also to raise money for those state and local races, um, raising money for any of the state reps, state senators, governor, the party raises those kinds of money. So um, in the Illinois case, it's been decided that uh, Robin Kelly cannot raise uh, state and local funds. We've reached out to Nakima Williams' office and to the Democratic Party of Georgia to say, how does this affect um, the role that she can play here in Georgia? Um, <clears throat> they declined to comment yesterday. I'm, I'm sure they're going through the details of it. But it raises, it does raise an issue. Those are um, parallel but not identical situations. So um, we, our headline is that it could affect the role that uh, the party is able to continue to play in the future. Well, I think I'm correct in saying that once uh, Nakeem Williams was elected to that John Lewis seat, the 5th District uh, congressional seat, uh, there were people who expected she might uh, resign from her role as a chair of the state party. She chose, at least initially, not to. I don't know what her long-range plans have been. Um, but this does put a, a shine a light on whether uh, staying on as party chair uh, uh, at the same time serving in Congress has been the best decision. Yeah, and we'll see. You know, the, the state Republican Party raised a boatload of money in uh, the first part of the year, pulled in more than a million dollars, and the state Democratic Party raised just a fraction of that. And so that's another thing that caught our eye. So we will continue to report that out. Um, another item in the jolt that I will bring to your attention is from uh, an interview that Butch Miller, uh, the state uh, state senator who is running for lieutenant governor, um, did an interview yesterday with our uh, friend Martha Zoller on her show uh, up in Gainesville. Butch Miller's from Gainesville. And um, she asked him about the statement that <laughs> that President Donald Trump put out about him um, on Wednesday night. Uh, Butch Miller said he had no idea it was coming. He said he didn't know that he was on anyone's radar um, and woke up in the morning to find this statement from President Trump that said President Trump refuses to support or endorse Butch Miller. And Butch Miller <laughs> said, I didn't know I was on the president's radar. Um, and the reason that Trump gave for that was that he felt like uh, Butch Miller did not do anything to help pass the Georgia um, election law, um, when in fact Butch Miller presided over the state Senate to pass the election law when Jeff Duncan said he wouldn't do it. And so um, the backstory on that is that another state senator named Burt Jones is uh, looking at running for lieutenant governor as well as a rival to Butch Miller. And uh Burt Jones has been to Mar-a-Lago, um, knows Donald Trump. And so we think that is uh, Donald Trump's not so subtle attempt to clear the field, um, although Butch Miller says he's not going anywhere. Um, I understand from Sam Burmistaz, we've got Eleanor Cleghorn back, which is wonderful. But just to put a, a, a last note on what you're saying, Patricia, yesterday, I did ask Keith Garrett, the Republican strategist on the show, whether he thought uh, that the Trump comment uh, about Butch Miller was just, uh, among other things, a shot across the bow at Georgia Republicans that they'd better stay loyal to him uh, <laughs> and uh, not stray. And uh, Heath, the Republican, said, 
absolutely no question in my mind. <laughs> Isn't right. everything Thank a shot for, across the back? Of course. Oh, of course. Thank you. Thank you for giving us a little insight. The jolt is up online right now. So is your uh, column. It, you continue your road to, trip across uh, Georgia. Real quick, where are you uh, reporting from on this one? I am in Macon, um, looking at the city's efforts to fight violent crime there. They've had a spike, and their efforts are really innovative. Okay. Um, Elner Claghorn, I'm so sorry we've had problems, but I, I understand you're back with us, right? I am back. Thank you for bearing with me, Bill. Oh, no, no, no. It's it's our fault. I mean, it's our technical problems. <laughs> You've been very generous and patient in waiting for us. I think perhaps... Um, given that we have somewhat less time, and um, I want to make sure that we get to the real um, uh, meat of a lot of what you say, it would be, I think it could be really instructive if you would tell us a bit about your personal journey. I mentioned early in the show, you went undiagnosed for a decade with um, what ended up being lupus, which is primarily a condition that women uh, experience. Could you you, you, you write about it very movingly in the book, and I think it would be important for our listeners to hear about your story. Of course. So in 2010, I was diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus, which is the most common form of the d disease called lupus. And as you say, 90% of people who suffer from lupus are women. So I was diagnosed after having um, had a mysterious heart condition. And I was in hospital. I was being cared for in a cardiac ward. And I had fluid accumulating around my heart. And none of my doctors could really figure out why this had happened to me. I'd just had my second son. And during that pregnancy, it was revealed that his heart was beating very slowly. And one of the reasons for this is that the mother's immune system mounts an attack against her baby. And it's quite rare, but it's often seen in mothers who have autoimmune diseases. Now, my baby was born healthy and well, thanks to the amazing doctors who cared for us when I was pregnant. But the implications that this immune abnormality, this autoimmune cell that I carried might have for my health, just didn't really get attended to in that time. And so when, so fast forward those nine weeks and I'm in hospital with my own heart condition, my doctors initially didn't really put the pieces of the puzzle together and consider that what had happened during my pregnancy was also affecting my health. Um, so I was diagnosed with lupus, which was the reason for my baby's heart condition, my own heart condition, and immediately referred to really expert care at one of the best lupus units in, in Europe, which is in St. Thomas's Hospital in London. But... For about, as you say, for about a decade, really for about eight years, but maybe a little bit before then, I had suffered what I now understand are the characteristic symptoms of lupus. So this included joint pain and joint swelling. It included migraines, um, photosensitivity, and also mental health issues, I think, associated with being in that much pain. And every time I went to the doctors, I was invariably dismissed or told that my pain was the consequence maybe of hormones, possibly of being anxious or work-stressed. I was never referred for any further diagnostic tests during that time. I was never given any medication or any sort of substantial blood work. And what I came to understand was that this disease was probably underlying in my body for that time, for at least a decade. So had I been taken seriously, had I been believed, uh, when I complained of my pain to my doctors that something was serious was happening, I might not have gone through the life-threatening flare of lupus that almost claimed my unbaby's, uh, unborn baby's heart and then my own. And and what you you tell us is you connect that to the fact that again in in our in the twenty first century. We women are still being uh, marginalized to some extent. The disease, the the um, conditions that they suffer, are, are continue to not just baffle some in the medical community, but to be um, uh, dismissed. So, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, are other examples again of conditions that women experience um, at much 
greater rates uh, than men. And I certainly know women who have uh, uh, said that they suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome and have uh, routinely uh, in in the workplace, had employers who have said, "You got to get back to work. This we don't know any. This condition doesn't seem to really exist. This is still going on. It is still going on, and it goes on, as you say, with these complex and often contested diseases like chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia that do affect women disproportionately. And I think there are a couple of things that are really happening behind this. One is a lack of knowledge. So there has been historically a lack of research around complex diseases that predominantly affect women. So our kind of first port of call, healthcare providers, our doctors, our GPs, simply don't have enough knowledge in order to make a diagnosis when a patient reports to them with symptoms like pain and fatigue, which apply to many different diseases. But if you're a woman and you complain of pain or fatigue, these are also symptoms that are statistically more likely to be interpreted as evidence of a mental health condition, for example, rather than an underlying organic or physiological disease. So I think women and marginalized people are up against two difficulties when they suffer, especially from chronic pain-causing conditions. They're up against a lack of knowledge and research, and they're also up against a kind of cultural stigma, cultural prejudice or bias against the way that women express pain, against the way that women relate to their bodies, which, you know, has been seen in studies to definitely stack against them when they're trying to get attention and answers uh, for what is going on in their bodies. You and the book really tie today's lack of knowledge about women's health to women's historical lack of access to knowledge um, for hundreds of years. I'd love for you to share more about that. Yes, of course. Um, Thank you. That's a great question. Um, For centuries, medicine, of course, has been a male-dominated profession. And, you know, it wasn't until the 19th century that women were permitted to gain the same level of medical training that men were. So once they were able to, you know, fulfill those levels of medical education, then they could claim licenses. But we're talking about centuries of medical knowledge being laid down and refined and perfected that really absented any sort of uh, contributions from women at all. So within that, you not only have the sort of absenting and excluding of women from creating knowledge, but you also have the dynamic of what it means to be a male doctor caring for the, or you know, trying to care for the female body at points in history where women, as we said earlier, were really not regarded as reliable narrators or reliable authorities of their own bodies. So again, we have these you know, two things that are happening at once, the exclusion of women from the creation of medical knowledge and also the sort of ignorance around the fact that women do understand what's happening in in their bodies, like taking away from them that agency and the knowledge being handed to the authority of patriarchal paternalistic medicine. But even though women didn't have access to degrees and actual formalized study, I thought it was so interesting that you write women have really been practicing care for centuries. Absolutely. I mean, the importance of women caring for their own bodies, for the bodies of their families, for their bodies of their people in their communities, especially in the earlier centuries, you know, before the 19th century, when medicine became a more formalized practice, um, is hugely important. And of course, you know, women across those centuries have always made contributions, especially in the areas of childbirth and reproductive care. Um, But I think in terms of what we would call our sort of canonical medical knowledge, women have been excluded from that. So their knowledge or their contribution is is not, hasn't been transmitted as knowledge in the same way that, say, you know, the foundational medical master's knowledge has been. So it's really important always, and thank you for bringing it up, that women have made incredible contributions to human health and healing Uh, across the centuries. And it's just a shame that that kind of knowledge wasn't legitimized until, you know, in historical terms, really quite recently. 
Well, I'd love to talk about uh, one of those people uh, and and put her up against a man whose work she fought back against. So we're going to go back to the 19th century, um, a time when women's conditions were often dismissed as nervous exhaustion or hysteria of one kind or another. And you write about Silas Weir Mitchell, a doctor who in the 1870s, as you say, concocted theories about the threat intellectual activities posed to women's future womanly usefulness. And he insisted that women who suffered nervous exhaustion were hysterics, should be kept in bed for as long as two months, be forbidden any activity of any kind other than brushing their teeth. So I'd love it if you talk a little bit about him, but then put him up against Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who's one of the heroes of your book, who in 1892 wrote a short story called The Yellow Wallpaper, which she had been treated by Mitchell and found him uh, to be a, 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 a horrific in the way he dealt with her, and the yellow wallpaper was her answer. Would you talk a bit about that? Of course. And Silas Weir Mitchell is really, if Charlotte Perkins Gilman's one of the heroes of my book, Silas Weir Mitchell is definitely one of the villains. Weir Mitchell was a neurologist. Yeah, he was a neurologist and he became um, America's most sort of well-known and popular nerve specialist. He'd um, developed a theory known as the rest cure, which was actually initially designed as a way to treat what we would now call sort of shell shock um, in, because he worked uh, as a doctor in civil war and he observed that men who'd been injured in battle would often develop, you know, what we might now call PTSD or shell shock. And that he observed that these symptoms were very similar to the symptoms at the time that had been documented in female hysteria or female nervousness. So he devised this treatment that involved keeping people in bed, um, confining them to bed rest, feeding them a very sort of fatty, rich diet consisting of many, many pints of milk and heroic amounts of sort of beef broth, which was designed to fatten the blood and, you know, to prevent them from sort of undertaking any intellectual activity at all. And he believed that there was an epidemic of nervousness amongst especially young women in America in the later decades of the 19th century. And he believed that this rescuer would be the perfect sort of counter or perfect foil for women who he believed were using illness and using hysterical symptoms as a way almost to check out of their domestic duties as, you know, wives and mothers. So he saw this epidemic of hysteria and nervousness less as a sort of serious illness that was, you know, harming the health of women across the nation and more as a sort of attention-seeking craze amongst women who didn't want to do what they should in terms of, as he quoted their womanly usefulness. So he set up, he had a clinic in Philadelphia, a private clinic, where he would submit his patients to the rescuer and they would stay in bed with no company apart from their nurse. They would be forbidden all intellectual and creative activity apart from teeth brushing and fed this sort of quite horrifying sounding diet of pints and pints of milk, of fatty food, of cream and of beef broth because he believed that by fattening the blood, you could sort of calm the nervous system. And of course, his attitudes were particularly misogynistic. He really did believe that women used illness as a way to check out life, and that if you were going to cure nervousness and hysteria, you had to break the resolve of the sick woman, and I'm quoting him there. In the 1870s, One of his most famous patients was the American writer, activist and lecturer Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who had suffered terribly from what we would now call, you know, major depressive disorder. And she had had a particularly difficult time after the birth of her child. And she'd read about Weir Mitchell and written him a letter to explain that she was, you know, reaching sort of real kind of mental bloom and that she really needed help. 
So she went to his clinic and submitted to the rescue, which she found agreeable enough and was told to return home and continue the regimen at home. And he also told her to never again pick up a brush, a pencil or a quill for as long as she lived. Now, Perkins Gilman was an intellectual. She was a writer. Writing was her life. And she did follow this rescue regimen very strictly, but it made her incredibly unwell and incredibly ill. And it just really deepened her depression. And when she wrote The Yellow Wallpaper in 1892, it was a fable that was very closely autobiographical about a young woman who's confined to a gaudily wallpapered bedroom by her husband, who also happens to be a physician, after the birth of her child when she's suffering from postnatal depression. The physician husband says, you know, there's nothing wrong with her. She has a slight hysterical tendency. And she's locked in this bedroom and forbidden, again, forbidden to do anything apart from brush her teeth. And she goes very uh, gradually, very rapidly, I'm sorry, more depressed and sort of more intertwined with the wallpaper. So it was a really uh, a story that was supposed to be a sort of warning about the medical establishment, the misogynistic medical establishment and the authority that, yeah, sorry. No, 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 that's fine. I just wanted to say, and it was that short story which began bringing attention uh, to the so-called rest cure. Let me do this. We've got to get to a break. Um, I know Patricia Murphy has a lot she wants to ask you about. and So let me take a quick break. We'll be back with more to talk about Eleanor Cleghorn, about her extraordinary book, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis, and Myth in a Man-Made World. This is Political Rewind. Our guest on this special edition of Political Rewind, Eleanor Cleghorn, author of Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. We step away from the political headlines of the day to have this really important conversation. But we'll be back on uh, Monday to uh, talk about state and national politics. Patricia Murphy, AJC uh, political reporter and columnist, uh, is here. It's Friday, the day that we talk to her. And uh, Patricia, I said at the beginning of the show, I'm literally the odd man out. So I really want to give you an opportunity (laughs) to spend some time talking to Eleanor about your questions and comments. Thank you. Um, Eleanor, here in Georgia, where we are in the south of the United States, um, we look at uh, women's health um, and we really still see very, very clear disparities between women of color and women. Um, Generally, uh, you've really documented um, how all of this um, has come to pass for women's health generally, but you also say that those disparities between uh, white women and women of color really has um, origins and history as well. It does. And thank you for asking me about this. Um, The disparities, because we talk a lot about things like the gender health gap and the gender pain gap. And of course, how wide that gap is really depends on who you are. And these disparities really widen for women of colour. And this has, I sort of found in my research, a very long historical precedent. And some of the issues around perceptions and biases, especially pain, of black, Asian, ethnically, Latinx, ethnically diverse women has its roots in ideas about um, civility, I say in very heavily inverted commas, and about how those sorts of states of being affected a person's vulnerability to pain. In the early 19th century, there were ideas adopted into medicine or medical knowledge from anthropology which assumed a sort of pain scale, if you like, and the most the, those thought to be most capable of feeling a lot of pain were refined, delicate, nerved, white, upper class, upper middle class women, and women of colour were thought to feel thought to be virtually invulnerable to pain. And of course, now that we look back on this terrible racist misbelief, we understand it in the context of chattel slavery. We understand that it was part of the justification for some of the horrific abuses and exploitations of the bodies of women and people of colour. But 
this the idea that this you know sort of invulnerability to pain has really it's a myth that has really and a racist misbelief that I believe has persisted across the centuries in the ways that we you know value and prioritize white women's pain over the pain of women of color. And for all women, you know, I read this part of the book and just thought to myself, we still so celebrate women's ability to endure pain and say, oh, a mom can endure anything. You can get through childbirth. You can do it all. Um, and to me, it really um, marginalizes uh, pain in women and the real legitimate source, source of pain for women. Um, but something else that you've mentioned is that um, when women go into doctor's offices, they even present their own pain and symptoms in a way that is more social and even less authoritative to the doctors that they're presenting that information to. Yes, that's so true. And what you said earlier about um, women being seen as being able to endure pain. That issue presents such a paradox because I think you're completely right. There's a real culture in which we sort of believe that, or there's this kind of perception that women are capable of bearing or should have to bear physical pain in ways that men aren't expected to bear it because we have pain sort of written into and inscribed into our bodies because of our menstrual cycles, because of reproduction, because of childbearing you know there's this sort of this pain inscribed into us that we're that we are thought to be able to bear and I think that that really sort of plays out in when we see how gynecological diseases and issues around menstrual health are very often dismissed or not um, investigated further in diagnostic processes because there's a certain kind of pain that women are just expected to have as the inevitable consequence consequence of having a female body and this is really paradoxical when we think that as you as you just pointed out that when women go to the doctor's office to speak up about pain that may actually be because of an underlying disease very often is then that pain is minimized and quite often not believed or underestimated because of ways that women tend to speak about their pain and there's been a, there was a study done about uh, in 2001 that was a really a pioneering study about gender bias in the treatment of pain. And it showed that it wasn't just women who were dismissed, you know, because of their sex. They were dismissed because of the way that they speak about pain and, as you say, a more social, personal and emotional way. So women tend, if they say they have pain, maybe to speak about it in terms of how that pain affects others around them how it might affect, say, their children or their loved ones, how it might affect their ability to work. Whereas men, and of course not all men, but men tend to speak about pain in a more straightforwardly descriptive way that applies directly to the body and to the pain only. And societally, these, you know, narrativizing and storytelling, we distrust it. We do distrust it. And, and bias studies have borne this out. Um, so this also counts against women when they, you know, are trying to have their pain interpreted, interpreted and validated. When when we started the show, Bill had mentioned that his wife and daughter both have female doctors. Um, I have female doctors. My son actually asked if a man can be a doctor because all of his pediatricians are men, <laughs> 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 which I loved. I'm like, of course you can be a doctor. Um, uh, but it's not just men in the medical field, I think, that have um, brought the system to where it is today. Of course, it's uh, the people who are conducting medical research, the people funding that research, and then the public policymakers who are implementing the findings of that research. And here in Georgia, and I think in just about every state, um, it's predominantly male. It's male-dominated legislatures. Congress is male-dominated. So um, do you see that these kinds of, of social um, assumptions that are built into the medical community, do you also see that pervasive across um, kind of the entire medical establishment? And is that making a difference too? I think you're completely right that the biases, the biases are perpetuated, the gender biases are perpetuated often because there are biases from the very top that are just, you know, pervasive and ingrained. Um, and often I think that this comes down to what we value. 
So there, are, you know, we're now getting to this incredible point in history where women are outnumbering men entering medical medical schools in the U.S. and in the U.K. too. You know, we're looking to a future where so many more of our caregivers will be women, will be female, and you know that says so much for the kind of standards of our care. You know, those doctor-patient interactions and and how they will go for us. But I think you're right at the very top. You know, in terms of what is prioritised. For funding, what is prioritised for research grants, you know, how, you know, large amounts of information is actually gathered and how that, how policy can be changed. We do have this kind of stalemate where it is dominated, it is male dominated and reflected therefore of certain biases about what we value in our society. And I think this is something that um, we can really relate to in the UK as well. You know, it's often been that in order for women's health issues to be prioritised and valued at a systemic change-making level, that it takes you know, a lot of grassroots activism, it takes women working in the third sector, it takes women speaking up about their pain and illnesses and the way they've been medically neglected to, to force change at the top. And that's an awful lot of work, I, I believe, for women to do. Um, so what we need, as well as this brilliant cultural shift that we're seeing, you know, in terms of the uh, the fact that there are so many more female doctors and caregivers, and the fact that we are entering this uh, this time in our history when we can speak out more freely and more empoweredly about our bodies, we also need systemic change as well, so that these biases don't keep getting perpetuated. As the guy on today's show. I would just like to make the comment that I think men benefit uh, from uh, women in medicine, too. My general practitioner is a woman. I absolutely have no doubt that when I go to see Dr. Walton, uh, she looks at me with a sensitivity and an empathy, uh, is a more caring in an emotional way uh, than I could ever hope to have. I mean, obviously, there are wonderful male doctors out there. We know that, Eleanor. But the fact of the matter is, I feel I feel very well taken care of by, by a, in, in uh, her case, a woman with great empathy and compassion. Does that make any sense to you at all? It makes perfect sense. I think empathy is so key. And, you know, we when we think about our model of of medical care, you know, if there is something going on with our bodies, we want our doctors to figure out what's going on. We want them to run the right tests, to prescribe the right medication, to refer us to the correct specialist. But we also need, in the first instance, empathy. We need to be listened to and we need to be met as human beings by another human being. I think in order to really feel that we are being cared for and as well as sort of the intricacies of knowledge around disease being so crucial, you know, the knowledge of pathology and what causes diseases and how to treat them, we also need to be met as humans and cared for. And I think that you're right, some male doctors do this brilliantly. Um, women tend to be better at it, but there are some fantastic male doctors too. I always feel that it's not about, you know, I'm, I'm always at great pains to say how much fantastic care I have had from the NHS in England, and they have saved my life, and I have encountered some brilliant caregivers, both male and female. Um, this problem is systemic, and the biases that, that some people encounter are ingrained, and they're so ingrained that, what we, that they often go above the level of individual prejudice, right, and they're part of um, of a system in which, you know, they're often the way that that sort of doctor-patient encounter is limited to maybe just a few minutes, 10 minutes in the UK. You know, you have that little bit of time in which you're trying to interpret somebody else's pain and as the person who feels the pain to communicate it. You know, there's an awful lot that has to happen in a very short, short space of time. And so if you have a doctor who puts empathy first, empathy is the most, you know, important healing tool or healing mechanism, then I think it can, it really does improve the route to care. I really feel that strongly. As we come down to the last few minutes of the show, if you don't mind, I want to read a, a few of the words of your book back to you. Um, and in fact, it's how you close your book. You say, 
um, and then we'll talk just a little bit about this. Medicine's history has always been and is still being rewritten by women's resistance, strength, intelligence, and incredible courage. Feminism has given us our bodies back. We need medicine to understand how hard it has been for us to get a place where we are able to speak up about how it feels and where it hurts. We are the most reliable narrators of what is happening in our own bodies. That's a powerful uh, statement and I think summarizes in a, in a very succinct way what the entire book is about, uh, Eleanor. Well, thank you so much for reading that out. It's something that I feel very strongly about that we have, that women especially, have for a very long time, for centuries, been made to feel uh, sh ashamed about speaking about our bodies. We've had, we haven't been given the knowledge about our bodies that we should have been given. You know, I don't feel that we're educated enough about the workings of our own bodies. And a lot of the reason for that is social, it's to do with stigma, it's to do with shame. And, you know, there's a very, very long history. I write in the book about medical misogyny and medical sexism, but I also try and, you know, account for those women, patients, activists, physicians, doctors, who really did push against some of that, you know, male medical orthodoxy to change the culture for us and to create a more respectful and equitable health culture, not just for women, but oh. for everyone. I want to give uh, Patricia one last chance to uh, weigh in because we're really running short on time. Um, Eleanor, do you have any advice for women when they are um, going into doctor's offices and especially going into medicine? What language, um, what changes should they be making to push this progress forward? Eleanor, this is going to have to be about a 30-second uh, look at what you would suggest. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Okay, I'll do a quick one. I always say, you know, that I always say this, that if you encounter um, bias, if you encounter dismissal, it's not your fault. It's often not the fault of your care provider either. I think if you've got the energy and the strength that you can advocate for yourself by maybe keeping a symptoms diary, maybe you could take somebody with you who can advocate for you, bear witness to what's happening in that room. But I think always really important to go in there knowing that this is your body, this is your experience. And sort of no matter what you are told, that you are the most reliable narrator of what is happening. And if you feel it, that it is real. We are completely out of time for uh, today's show. First, Patricia Murphy, I'm so glad uh, that you were part of this uh, show today. You brought a dimension to the questioning that I certainly would not have been able to do. So thank you, Patricia. We'll look forward to uh, getting everybody to read your column from Macon. Uh, at AJC.com and then in the Sunday uh, newspaper. Um, Eleanor Cleghorn, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World, really opened my eyes, as I'm sure it does, uh, a lot of people, men and women, who read this book. So thank you so much for being with us today, Eleanor. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. I think Eleanor's gone. <laughs> okay, we're out of time. We'll be back on Monday with a brand new show. I hope you all have a great weekend. Um, in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask. Goodbye. <laughs>